We will be dealing with two topics today here on Waderberg Stereo, confound of the legal news. Firstly, I will be talking to Tandeka and Panza regarding the question as to what age is relevant for a child to be held criminally liable in South Africa. If a 12-year-old boy commits murder, can he be found guilty? Then I'll also be talking to Janus Olifid regarding restraints of trade in South African law, and specifically, we will be dealing with the question as to whether you can enforce a restraint of trade where an employee was retrenched. So please stay tuned for both these discussions. You're also welcome to send us your emails with your questions and comments, info at vvd.co.za is the email address that you can use for these purposes. You're listening to Founder of Illegal News here on Waterberg Stairs. program is sponsored by the Victor de Villiers Brokers. There was an article in uh, ABC News on their website confirming the lowering of the age for criminal liability in China to 12 years of um, age. Now, according to the article, this um, decision was taken in respect of serious crimes, where the age is now 40 or lowered from 14 to 12, uh, which looks like an effort to combat juvenile crime committed by um, children. Now, under the amended law, according to the article, Children aged 12 to 14 will be held criminally liable for intentional homicide or intentional injury that leads to death or causes other uh, severe disabilities by extremely cruel means. So that's where the serious crimes um, are relevant. The um, amendment was um, passed now recently and will come into effect on the 1st of March. So, yeah, those under the age of 14 who commit crimes, apart from those um, mentioned in the amended law, um, will still be exempt from criminal punishment, but could be given correctional education, according to the article. Currently, the age of criminal liability in China is 16, with those between 14 and 16 held criminally responsible for serious crimes, such as rape, robbery and intentional homicide. Now, the uh, amendment, once again, according to the article, um, follows a rise in juvenile crimes from 2018 to 2019, according to a white paper in June um, by the uh, Supreme People's um, Procuratorate. Uh, that's um, according to the article. And then um, it's also mentioned that in one instance, a 13-year-old boy from the northern city of Dalian was given just three years of correctional education after he was apparently found guilty of murdering a 10-year-old girl in October 2019. And that uh, prompted the cause for the legislative changes, uh, etc., to happen. So, yeah, I asked uh, Tandeka Panza from our offices to maybe have a look at what the position in South Africa is. What, uh, from what age are uh, children criminally liable. 
Well, firstly, uh, good day, Falcon. Good day to the listeners at home. Now, the position of South Africa is slightly different. In terms of the Child Justice Amendment Act, the minimum age of criminal capacity of children who have committed an offence has been increased from 10 to 12 years old. It is said that this is rec- it recognizes the fact that children alleged to have committed offenses, they need a certain level of protection and support to enable their rehabilitation. And this support, they might not be able, they may not be exposed to it if they are, when they are sent directly to the criminal justice system. It also acknowledges that support services such as the Department of Justice and Social Development have to determine why a child as young as 12 years, for example, has committed an offense and what intervention is needed and should be provided. Now, while still on that topic, the new age of criminal capacity means that children up to the age of 12 years old lack criminal capacity and cannot be arrested for committing an offence. And it's also interesting to note that previously, the Child Justice Act regulated the criminal justice system that caters for children under the ages of 18 years old. On the issue of capacity, the Act previously stated the following, that children up to the age of 10 years old, 10 years of age lack criminal capacity and may not be arrested for committing an offence. Now, these children must be referred to the Children's Courts or the Department of Social Development. Children from 10 years of age and up to 14 years of age have criminal capacity, but the owners would still rest on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that an accused child had criminal capacity when committing an, an, an offence. And lastly, children above 14 years of age were regarded by the law to have the mental ability to distinguish between right and wrong and can understand the consequences of their actions. Now, this amendment to the Act now entails that children up to the age of 12 years of age lack criminal capacity and may not be arrested for committing an offence, and these children must therefore be referred to the Children's Court or the Department of Social Intervention for rehabilitation rehabilitative measures that will intervene. So a 12-year-old child, if he um, murders another child, for example, in South Africa, cannot be found guilty of murder. Exactly, sir. Right. Um, Yeah, anything else that you want to add? Maybe an example or so from a court case where some of these principles were applied? I think it's important to remember that uh, sentencing, the courts consider different types of sentences uh, for 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 minors and for adults. Even as far as back as back as the 1980s, in R versus Yankees, the court held that a fitting sentence for a 12-year-old boy who had murdered his friend was a sentence of two years in reform school. Um, also in um, S versus Whitehead, the court found that a sentence of 22 years amounts to life imprisonment and that a more appropriate sentence for a 17-year-old will be 15 years. The court opinioned that any term of imprisonment of almost 25 years should only be imposed in the most exceptional circumstances and was very unusual in our law. So I think it also just gives a background as to how our our, our law always attempts to show um to 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 sort of rehabilitate, looking at the circumstances, the socioeconomic circumstances of the children of child offenders, and seeing um seeking to rather remedy uh, these actions than rather than be punitive in in its nature, which differs quite vastly from what we are seeing in China where they are seeking to 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 impose punitive measures on their minor children. So children up to 12 years of age to maybe summarize cannot be held criminally liable in South Africa and mm-hmm. uh, other children let's say up to the age of 18 uh, South Africa one um, comes a major uh, and an adult person in terms of our law 
at the age of 18. It used to be 21 uh, years, as uh, some listeners might also recall, but that uh, age was lowered to 18. So with 18 years of age, you are now uh, an adult person, so African uh, law. Uh, but other children, let's say from 13 to 18, uh, would also have the benefit of their age being considered as mitigating circumstances when a court has to decide on a sentence after such a child has uh, been found guilty. Am I right in, in, in saying that? You are exactly right, Walker. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Tandika. I think that gives us uh, an idea of how children are treated by our criminal law in South Africa. We're listening to Fafelndafi Legal News here on Waderberg Stereo. And the question that we are going to discuss now is whether a restraint of trade is enforceable in South Africa if you are retrenched. In other words, you, uh, for example, lost your job because of the pandemic, COVID-19, you are retrenched. The um, employer has given you the bad news, and now you want to start your own business, which might be in competition with your employer's business. question is, is a restraint of trade, which might be in your contract of service, enforceable? Um, we sometimes ago talked about a restraint of trade as well. Some of our regular listeners might recall and it was specifically Janis Ullefield, who I also asked to join me today, who talked about the Thomas case, but then actually uh, dealt with uh, duress, if I'm not mistaken. In other words, uh, the uh, employee argued that he was forced to sign the relevant agreement and consent to the restraint of trade, and he tried to convince the court that he should consequently not be forced to adhere to the restraint of trade. In other words, he argued that the the strain of trade should not be enforceable. But unfortunately for him, he uh, lost that case. So uh, that uh, strain of trade was indeed uh, enforced. Now, before I asked uh, Janis to maybe talk about certain requirements related to a restraint of trade being uh, enforceable, I can maybe share a couple of thoughts with our listeners that are typically relevant when we deal with a restraint of trade was drafting contracts for our clients. Now, as we mentioned before, one contract where we often see a restraint of trade is in a contract of service. And the idea there typically would be that the employer says to the employee, I'm happy to employ you. I'm happy to share all my tips and my secrets, my um, skills um, with you and empower you to be uh, an effective employee. But if you leave my employment, I don't want you to compete with me. So I guess from an employer's point of view, such a restraint of trade makes sense. He wants to protect his business and he consequently is only prepared to share all his secrets with the employee if the employee then agrees to the restraint of trade. On the other hand, the poor employee obviously uh, needs to make other plans to survive and certainly wants to use the skills that he learned if he indeed loses his employment. Now, in the South African law, in the South African law, even before our constitution came into operation, not all restraint of trades were 
in my opinion, enforceable. Uh, there was always a test of reasonableness that was applied. There's a very well-known case, Magna Alloys matter, that was um, decided on many years ago before our constitution came into operation, where the court, for example, made it clear that an employer cannot always enforce such a restraint of trade. The restraint of trade must be reasonable in respect of the area covered by the restraint and also in terms of the time frame that the parties agree on. So if you, for example, employ someone as an IT technician and you get that person to sign a restraint of trade, which then covers the whole world for 20 years, for example, then the court will never enforce enforce such an agreement. That uh, would be unreasonable. Now, in many cases, in my experience, to make sure that the time period is reasonable, uh, parties would, for example, agree on a two- or three-year uh, time period, and typically maybe on the relevant province, or, for example, the um, uh, or radius of, let's say, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 kilometers from the principal place of business uh, where the relevant employee would work. However, there are no hard and fast rules. Um, there are also different principles that would apply in respect of the various industries that might be relevant. So uh, you can't really give any exact rules in this regard. That's what the courts basically say. Um, so a court would always, based on all the circumstances, decide what is reasonable in the relevant industry um, and what not. In other words, for example, the IT industry might differ from the mining industry. Um, I guess, for example, in the IT industry, there would be no more opportunities for someone uh, to work outside the area of the restraint of trade as opposed to maybe some of the other industries that uh, that uh, could be relevant. So. Um, yeah, when one drafts an agreement, um, for example, a contract of service, then it's obviously important to make sure that the restraint of trade is reasonable so that it can be enforced. Apart from a contract of service, uh, restraint of trade would typically also be relevant where there's a sale of a business. So in such a case, the seller would say, look, I'm happy um, to sell my business um, to you, the purchaser would say, okay, I'm happy to buy it. I'm happy to pay you 5 million rand as a purchase price for the business. But obviously, I want to have the benefit of all your clients, of your goodwill related to your business. So please um, don't uh, compete with me uh, so that uh, I can't really have the benefit of the business. So in such a case, one would uh, also in most scenarios, agree on a restraint that would be incorporated into the sale of business agreement so that the seller can't, shortly after the transfer of the business, for example, open the shop that competes with the purchaser next door. The same applies to shareholders' agreements in many cases, um, also partnership agreements or association agreements for close corporations. In those cases, for example, where there are shareholders, the same thinking would be relevant. In other words, the parties say, look, I'm, we're happy to join forces. Maybe, or in many cases, one of the shareholders would have a lot more uh, insight, knowledge, and skills, and uh, expertise in respect of the relevant industry 
where the company is going to operate uh, in and that shareholder would then often argue, look, I'm happy to share all these secrets, secrets once again with you, but then you must sign this restraint of trade and then uh, parties would once again negotiate the area and the time that should be covered uh, by the restraint of trade. So that's how I would sort of uh, describe the relevant factors to be considered when uh, talking about the possible enforceability of uh, restraint of uh, trade. Um, so as a general rule, the, the restraint of trade, I would say to on, answer the question that we initially posed, whether restraint of trade is enforceable in South Africa if you are retrenched, is that yes, it is enforceable, but only if it's reasonable, if it, uh, if it manages, if, if, if uh, it, uh, it's, the relevant criteria is met. So if that test is, is uh, successfully applied, then it would, as a, as, as a general rule, be enforceable. But there are certain other requirements, um, uh, specifically, I think, uh, Johannes, in respect of protectable interest no? that, that I maybe can ask you to, to talk about and explain to our listeners uh, where those relevant principles become relevant. Thank you, Fokker. Yeah, that is correct. The, the requirement of a protectable interest is very important when it comes to restraint of trades. Uh, you've mentioned the Magna Alloys case where the court said that uh, it, 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 the restraint has to be reasonable before it will be enforced. And that is because Section 22 of the Constitution says that every citizen has the right to freely choose their trade, occupation or profession. So in other words, if a restraint of trade is enforced, it actually infringes or, or limits your constitutional right um, as provided then in Section 22. That is why the Magna Alloys case said it has to be reasonable. And um, that reasonableness, I would argue, comes in the form of uh, interest of the employer that is deserving of protection by the courts. Um, here, the case of Basson versus Chilwan is actually the, the locus classicus, in my opinion. Um, locus classicus here just basically means the court case that is considered to have the, the most authority on a particular subject. So in Basson versus Chilwan, the court held, as I've mentioned now, that for an estate of trade to be enforceable, there has to be an interest of the employer which is deserving of protection, and that interest must at least run the risk of being prejudiced uh, if the restraint of trade is not enforced. So if you, if you read the case laws surrounding restraint of trade, you will find, in my opinion, that there appears to be two types of interest um, which the courts will, will regard as, as protectable and deserving of protection when it comes to restraint of trade. The first interest will be trade connections, being the relationship that the particular employee has with the customers of the employer or, or potential customers as well. And secondly, trade secrets, which is, of course, something you mentioned now. And that's the employer's secrets that he uses to gain that competitive edge over the competition. So obviously, if the employee now moves to a new employer and he takes those trade secrets or trade connections with him to the new employer, the existing employer will be prejudiced thereby. Um, and that is why it is a protectable interest. So it's very important that one must understand the protectable interest. There's a lot of case law about this, what is a protectable interest and not. There are certain scenarios where it becomes difficult to establish what is actually the knowledge of the employer and what is the knowledge of the employee. Um, what knowledge can generally be regarded that the employee would have 
uh, obtained via the course of completing a specific uh, work for the for the employer. So it's not always as clear cut as one would like it to be. Um, but yeah, what you definitely cannot do and what the courts will not do is simply enforce the restraint of trade to prevent your employees from working for the competition. That is very obviously an infringement of the constitutional right that I've mentioned. Um, uh, so it's vital that there exists a protectable interest before the courts will allow you to um, restrict the employees' constitutional rights. Um, and obviously, that protectable interest must then run the risk of being prejudiced should the restraint of trade not be enforced. So even if your time period is reasonable and even if your area is reasonable, as I explained before, your uh, enforcement of the restraint of trade might still fail if you don't uh, show that there is a predictable interest. And I guess it sort of also means that you would then have to sort of suffer damages if that employee is allowed to compete with you. No? If, if you can't really show that there will be any harm done to your business, then I guess the court will be difficult or find it difficult to accept that there is a predictable interest. Would you agree yeah. with that? Exactly, Folky. If there's no harm that you will suffer, why are you trying to just prevent the employee from working and, and um, yeah, well, enjoying his constitutional right? I would argue, actually, Folky, that this protect, protectable interest is the first requirement. Um, if there is a protectable interest, then one moves to the next requirement of, okay, um, what will be a reasonable time period for this restraint of trade? I actually think it, it ranks in preference. So the protectable interest, in my opinion, very, very important. And a lot of times it is missed by the employers who think they're just going to uh, basically stick it to the employee who's now resigned and going to work for the competition because they have this restraint of trade clause. And that's actually not the case. You must prove as you've mentioned now, that you will actually suffer some sort of damages or be prejudiced if your predictable interest um, might now be prejudiced. Yeah. All right. Um, I hope that gives our listeners an idea of the relevant legal principles related to restraints of, of trade. So I guess the lesson is that if you are going to sign a restraint of trade as employer, as employee, as shareholder as partner, whatever the case might be, or where a business is sold or, or bought, where you purchase or seller, make sure that you get proper legal advice, that you understand what the consequences thereof are. Um, if you have already signed one, if, for example, you are an employer, you must understand that the restraint of trade is not always enforceable, as we have now um, explained, so it's not that simple. If you are an employee, and you are worried about a restraint of trade that you have signed, I guess the lesson also for you is that it's not always enforceable. These requirements have to be met. So on the one hand, obviously, as a general rule, um, a contract is enforceable if you signed it. But in this case, there are, is a further requirement. The um, restraint of trade must comply with the principles that we have now discussed before it is enforced. So it might be some good news for some employees who maybe want to resign or shareholder who might be wants to sell his shares or partner who wants to dissolve the partnership, um, etc. So, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Jonas. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. 
Thanks for listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.